What are we studying this summer? Does anybody even know? Yes, spiritual disciplines. Uh, we're calling them uh, the discipleship practices. Um, traditionally, historically, we've called the discipleship practices uh, the spiritual disciplines. Um, these are the, the practices of, of a Christian's life uh, that allows uh, a Christian to pursue Christ wholeheartedly. Things like worship and prayer, uh, fasting, uh, meditating on God's word. Uh, last week, we, we looked at uh, the practice of confession, which leads to repentance. And this is discipleship 101. I mean, if, you, if you're asking right now, if you're a disciple, disciple of Jesus, you should also be asking, are, are, are the things that we're looking at this summer, the things that I just mentioned, are they regular uh, practices in your life? Because here's the deal, it, it's, it's really through these practices, uh, practices that Jesus himself modeled and then pushed into his disciples. Uh, these are the, the ways in which we change. When we put this stuff into practice, uh, God's salvation uh, is, is getting worked into us and, and, and worked out of us. And I know some people uh, sometimes think, Christians think this, uh, that there's no way that I could ever change, that there's no way that I could ever uh, become Jesus-like. Well, just take the practice that we looked at last week, the practice of, of, of confession. Think about what confession is. Confession is, is having the courage to acknowledge and, 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 and to see our sin. Um, think about what that leads to alone. It, it, it provides self-awareness. Self-awareness uh, creates humility in a person's life. Humble people are people who can actually see their flaws. They can see their failures. Proud people can't see their flaws and failures. Um, then when you add repentance to confession, repentance is when we actually look at the sin, confess the sin, and then we actually turn from the sin and, and we return to God. And we learned last week like what repentance is. It, it's one of the greatest things we have. It, it allows for us to experience the Father's heart of him running to us, embracing us, throwing his arms around us, uh, forgiving us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Uh, so like David, we can say, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are wholly covered, whose sins are no more. And see, all of that then allows for us to bless others. Um, the person who's been forgiven much is the person who can also forgive others. And Jesus said the person who's forgiven much is the person who loves much. And this is just one discipline. Uh, so anyway, uh, this week we're going to look at the practice of service and this practice like worship and prayer, confession, meditation uh, has the power to change us when we do it and not only change us, but this, this practice also has the power to change the world around us. So this week I'm just like, this is the problem with a topical sermon. When you have a whole Bible a God who wrote this book, whose heart is so that of service, 
So, so much of the book is about this. So where do you start? So I thought, how about Jesus? Let's start with, with, with Jesus. Um, I mean, when you look at his life and you, you, you look at his teachings, uh, you see that service is front and center. His, his life screams that of a servant. In fact, his whole movement, one that he will call the kingdom of God, it was predicated on people serving people. Especially in the first 300 years of Christianity, Christians all over the world, wherever it was being birthed, had a huge reputation of serving. Think about Jesus' parable, the Good Samaritan. I mean, at face value, uh, this parable paints a powerful picture, I think, of what it means to serve, uh, at least according to Jesus, because he's the one telling this parable. Uh, The Good Samaritan is someone who has eyes to see. He sees someone in the ditch. He sees a person in pain. And and, and the Good Samaritan is, is someone who, when they see that, they can't just walk past that. His heart breaks. In fact, the word that that Jesus uh, uses to describe the compassion of the Good Samaritan, uh, when he sees this man in the ditch, uh, it it says, uh, he uses this Greek word, splagzomai, which which gets to one's guts. He was feeling this explosion of mercy and compassion at the sight of this guy in the ditch. And this is what causes the Good Samaritan then to spend his time and spend his resources to rehabilitate, to restore, to help, to heal this person in need. And I think according to Jesus, this is what it means to serve. It's our eyes seeing, it's our heart breaking, and then it's our lives being expended uh, to help. To serve. Another way we like to put it around here at Crossroads, it's to disadvantage ourselves to, to advantage another person. Now, when Jesus told this parable, one thing I, I, I don't think we're fully aware of is how this fell on his audience, on his world, like a bomb. It blew up a paradigm that his world had, his Jewish world had. Who are we to serve? Because think about it. Even even not so good people will serve the people around them. They'll they'll serve their family. They'll serve their friends and and possibly even maybe some people in their tribe. But but the big question in, in Jesus' day was the question, who is my neighbor? In fact, so many debates were were around this question. And the reason for this is because every, every Jew in the first century believed that there was one great commandment. The greatest commandment was Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. But some Jews, Pharisees, some zealots, also attach Leviticus 19, verse 18 to Deuteronomy 6, 6, verse 5. 
In Deuteronomy 19, verse 18 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you ask, well, well, why did they think to do this? It's because in, in, in their Hebrew Bible, this word, you shall love, ve'ahavta, it's such a unique form of the word love that it's only used two times in Torah, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, Deuteronomy, Leviticus 19, verse 18. And what the rabbis did, when they saw a unique word that was only used two or just a few times, they put these verses together. They would connect these thoughts. So in this case, uh, the rabbis taught that to love God was through loving your neighbor. Loving our neighbor is commentary on how we love God. And if you want to know what Jesus thought about this, when someone asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He, like a lot of Jews in his day, he also included Leviticus 19, 18 in his answer. He says, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Then he adds Leviticus 19, 18, you shall also love your neighbor as yourself. So if loving our neighbor is on par with loving God. Can you imagine the debate then? Who is my neighbor? And see, every first century Jew agreed that, of course, neighbor includes fellow Jews. But then you also had some Jews, namely Pharisees, but other religious Jews who wanted to expand this to mean also non-Jews and Gentiles. I mean, you might even ask a a Pharisee, well, what about even the Romans? And a Pharisee still might say, yes, we must love the Romans as we love ourselves. But if you asked any first century Jew, religious or, or irreligious, well, what about the Samaritans? Every Jew would answer, absolutely not. And this is because there was this intense hatred between Jews and Samaritans. It was that generational hatred. It was cultural. It was racial hatred. And this is the shock in Jesus' parable. Because when you get to that point in in the parable, after the priest has passed by this guy in the ditch, and then the Levite passes by the guy in the ditch, everybody expects Jesus to say, and along came a Pharisee, or along came a rabbi, or along came a scribe. But to their shock, he says, but along came a Samaritan. And then what they expect Jesus to say, and he kicked the guy and beat on him even further. But to their shock, Jesus says, when this guy saw the man in the ditch, his guts were torn out with compassion. And he went to him and he expended his his time and and, and his resources uh, to rehabilitate this man and to heal him. And when Jesus is done, he asks the lawyer who asked Jesus the question, who then is my neighbor, which is why Jesus tells this whole parable. And Jesus here switches the question from who is my neighbor to who acted like a neighbor, to which the lawyer can't even get himself to say the Samaritan. 
Excuse me, sir, who acted like a neighbor? The one who showed mercy. And that's Jesus' answer to the original question, who is my neighbor? He just blew up their whole paradigm. Neighbor is not just your fellow uh, tribes person, your fellow Israelite. Neighbor is every single person on the face of the earth, including your worst enemy. And that's why Jesus ends this parable with go now and do likewise. Be a good Samaritan to even your worst enemy. And I'll say this, Jesus' answer to this lawyer's question changed. It changed the whole world. And you know why it changed the world? Because people actually became disciples of Jesus and they walked this out and they lived it. And the possibilities for a few disciples today to change the world, it's still there. And this is why Jesus in, a, in another place, he says, you know, there's some people who say, love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And then he says, even the pagans do that. But I tell you, love your enemies, do good to those who hurt you, pray for those who mistreat you, bless those who persecute you, for those who do so belong to my kingdom. Are we changing our world? Is the church right now that kind of force? Do we have this kind of reputation? Do you have eyes that see the hurt? Do you have a heart that breaks when you do see it? And are you doing anything about it? How are we right now disadvantaging ourselves to advantage other people? What I love about this story is Jesus not only taught it, he not only taught us to be the good Samaritan, but in every way he is the good Samaritan. I mean, when you just look at his life, uh, when you look at what he ha has done for us and, and how he did it, I mean, I'd like to think that all of us in this room right now in some way could give testimony how Jesus found you in your ditch, in your helpless, broken, dying, sinful condition, how you experienced his heart for you. And, and, and like Paul could, could say, you know, while yet enemies, Christ loved us, bandaged our wounds, rehabilitated our brokenness. And when you really stop and think about how he got every single one of us out of the ditch, it was actually by becoming that person in the ditch. He was beaten, he was stripped, he was left for dead, so that by his wounds, we are healed. And the reason, the reason why we as Christ followers care deeply about people in the ditch, 
the reason why we serve, it's not because we're so good. It's because he's so good. He's so good. And we know that goodness because we have experienced that goodness. And when you experience that goodness, to the extent that you have, you will show that goodness to the world around you. Or how about this statement from Jesus' lips? This is one of these purpose statements of Jesus' whole life. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life up as a ransom for many. I mean, this is such an extraordinary statement at so many levels, starting with that title, the Son of Man. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give up his life as a ransom for many. Now, whenever Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, because it's one of his, his, his favorite titles that he uses, I think when we, we see Jesus using it, we just think, ah, he's just being humble. It's like he's referring to himself as a mere mortal or, as, or, or an earthling. What we need to know, though, is that this is probably the highest, no, it's not probably, it is the highest messianic title there is, and it's not even close. And every Jew in Jesus' day knew this about this title, Son of Man. It comes right out of Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is a place where, where Daniel describes this vision that he has of three beasts who are terrorizing the earth. Uh, a beast is the Bible's imagery for a king who dominates the world through empire. And after seeing the, these three beasts, these, these three empires that are terrorizing the world, then Daniel in his vision sees a fourth beast. And this fourth beast becomes so great that it envelops all the other beasts. It becomes the king beast. And it's more terrifying and frightening than any of the other beasts before it. And it violently, through cruelty, dominates the world. But then Daniel in his vision... He says he sees one like a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven on his return from earth to stand before the ancient of days. And here the ancient of days, it's almost as if he knights him. And why does he knight this one uh, called son of man? <laughs> because he's just slain the great beast. And as the beast slayer, the Ancient of Days gives him all authority in heaven and earth to be the king to end all kings. And his kingdom will be forever. So when Jesus uses this term, son of man, his Jewish audience knows exactly what Jesus is saying about himself. He is saying, I am that king and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now what I find interesting is that Jesus never uses this title son of man in the first person. He never ever says, I am the son of man. It's always in the third person. And my thinking on this is, is, 
is that I think this title is so awesome that Jesus is actually giving his audience some space, even his disciples, for them to determine if Jesus truly is the Daniel 7 son of man. But what Jesus is emphatic on is how this son of man who possesses all authority from heaven and earth will conduct himself and unleash his authority. Now just think about some of those places where Jesus speaks to the son of man. One place he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. In other words, irrespective of what you think about me, whether I am the son of man, Jesus wants us to know when the son of man comes, he will have no palace, he will have no house, he will even not have a place to lay his head. Or how about when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus? In this discussion, Jesus says, uh, Nicodemus, do you remember that crazy story in our history when when our people were bit by those poisonous snakes. And so God told Moses to, to, to create this bronze snake, attach it to a pole, lift that pole up so that anyone who was snake bitten could come and look at that bronze snake. And when they looked at it, they'd be healed. And Jesus says, like that snake was put on a pole in the wilderness, Nicodemus, so the son of man too will be attached to a pole. The great son of man will be attached to a pole and people will look at him and live. Again, Nicodemus, irrespective of what you believe about me, just know that when the Messiah actually comes, yes, he will repair, he will heal, he will rehabilitate and it will look as crazy as that story. <laughs> In the verse we just read, Matthew 20, the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. <laughs> Can we even comprehend this? Again, he's talking in third person. So whoever this son of man is, this greatest of all kings who will be given supreme authority over all earth, everything will be under his dominion when he comes. He won't come to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many I can tell you this, that idea was unimaginable in Jesus' day. Because Rome was the earthly power of Jesus' day. It followed the Greek empire and it was arguably the greatest empire the world had ever seen. It is the fourth beast. And things like power and might are virtues to a Roman. Virtues. 
And I'm talking about power and might in all its forms, from status to class to wealth, celebrity. If you had that to any degree, it meant the gods were for you. And in this Roman uh, world, to, to exercise your power by, by lording it over other people, that is seen as Roman virtue. And throw in pride, throw in arrogance. This is all part of, of the highest Roman pursuit in life. The Romans' uh, greatest pursuit was the pursuit of glory. And if this is virtuous to a Roman, then you have to ask, well, what is sin to a Roman? Well, sin is imp imperfection. Sin is weakness in all its forms. Sin is getting old. Sin is having a disability. Sin is having no status. Sin is getting sick. It's being poor. It's having no rights. The least virtuous person in the Roman society was a slave. The most virtuous would be someone like Julius Caesar. He was the epitome of virtue to a Roman. He had the power, he had the status, he had the celebrity, he had the wealth. He was intensely arrogant. He's someone who achieved glory. You know how he achieved his power? You know how he achieved his status? You know how he achieved his celebrity? Through conquering. And let me just give you a small part of his conquering uh, that he is well known and, and famous for and, and therefore to a Roman seen as virtuous. Uh, he is the one who conquered the Gauls. He killed a million Gauls. That is today modern France. He took another million Gauls to be slaves. Because of this, one like Caesar is seen to be most virtuous in those million slaves. They're at the bottom in terms of virtue because to a Roman, sin is weakness. And this is why when Caesar died, Rome hailed him as a God. And this is the world that Jesus is living in. This is the world that Jesus is saying things like, the son of man, God's king, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom. One thing I know about this verse is that evangelicals typically love this verse uh, because Jesus says in, in this verse that he came to give his life as a ransom, meaning Jesus came to take our place, to be our substitute, to pay a debt that we could never pay. And out of this flows the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. While I wholeheartedly believe that Jesus died in our place and that his death did pay a debt incurred by my sin and your sin, this is not the main point of this verse. Listen to the context in which Jesus says this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that would be James and John, that mother, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it that you want, Jesus asked. She said, 
grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus responded, you, you don't even know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared by my father. But when the 10 other disciples heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So Jesus had to have a little family powwow. He called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the main point Jesus is driving home is to tell us the kind of king that he is and the kind of values that are going to permeate in his kingdom. And that's why, look at verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, you guys sound like the Greeks. You guys sound like the Romans. This lording it over them, their high officials exercising authority. That's not going to happen in my kingdom, in my movement. That's why he says what he says in verse 26. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. In other words, power in my kingdom isn't done through the great trying to be great. It's not done by trying to be the first and trying to be the best and trying to make it to the top. In fact, power in my kingdom is by those who see themselves as last and they're the ones that live last. In fact, Jesus describes power in his kingdom to be quite slave-like. And this is not a philosopher saying this. This is not a wise sage or a rabbi. This is the son of man, the king of the universe, the one who has all the power and this is how he does power, how he leverages power, how he uses his power, how he exercises his power, and how power is done in his kingdom. What I find so interesting, literally in just days from Jesus saying this, he will be standing before Rome, before Pontius Pilate, and he will say, my kingdom is not from this world. It's from a different stratosphere, but it's for the world. And he's looking at Pilate who, who has that, that Roman uh, hierarchy of, of values and virtues in his mind. And he's saying, my kingdom is not about being the strongest or the richest, the prettiest and the smartest. My kingdom is not a kingdom where might makes right, where the winners are exalted, where the celebrities are praised, where the sword gets things done. 
In fact, listen to what Jesus says in, in two verses before uh, the mother of Zebedee coming to Jesus. On his way to Jerusalem, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am that kind of king. The way I'm going to deliver is by being delivered up. And he keeps going in verse 19. He says, and you and I will be handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. That's the way the Gentiles do power. That's the way the Romans do power. And I don't know if you know this, but long before the church, Rome had already made the cross its symbol of power and victory. The cross, the crucifixion, something that the Romans had perfected was their statement to the world. We win, you lose. And if you confront our power in any way, this is what we do to you. And this is why Rome crucified thousands every year. And then to think that God from on high looks down and says, wow, I actually like that symbol. I'm gonna take that symbol as my symbol to show the world what my power is like and how I win. And to show the world the values of my kingdom. And God takes that symbol and he subverts it and he puts his king on it. And it's God's stake in the ground to say, world, here's my king. And here's how I win. And this is how I show off my glory. And this is what my kingdom is about. And Jesus Christ, hanging on a cross, is the greatest power the world has ever seen or experienced. And it's not even close. And when Christ crucified gets into the soul and the psyche of a person, a family, a church, a village, a city, when it gets into the soul or the psyche of a whole nation or even a whole continent as it did in the Roman Empire, an empire where the strong preyed upon the weak and that was seen as virtuous, the book of Acts tells us two times about the early church and there was not a need, a single need among them. Or the Roman emperor Julian who, who tried so hard to persecute the Christians because by uh, 
the 200s now, uh, the church was just spreading from, from village to village, town to town, city to city. It was, it was like gangrene. He, he, he couldn't control it. And, and, and he tried to persecute it and, and, and put it out. But one of the things he, he writes about Christians in the third century, he calls them the impious Galileans. He says the impious Galileans relieve both their own poor and our poor. Or how about the philosopher uh, Aristides uh, living in Athens in 130 AD? He writes this long apology to his friend about Christians. Um, he talks about how Christians spend themselves to help the homeless, the fatherless. And this is another thing he writes. He says, and if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare of food to give, they will fast for two or three days in order to take the food that they were going to eat themselves to supply it to the needy for their lack of food. And I say, wow. Or how about Christians living in Rome in 250 AD? And this is after an intense persecution they did a 100-day fast to provide, in effect, a hundred, a million meals for the needy. And Christianity didn't just move into poverty, it moved into slavery. It, it undid it. And the exploitation of, of women and children, something that was part of the daily fabric of, of Roman society, it was, it was just normal. And this exploitation uh, of women and children, it wasn't just physical, but it was sexual. And Christians changed their world because they treated every single human being with dignity. Like the Good Samaritan. They treated the very last as first. They treated the slave as the greatest. And they lavished love upon people that should have been their worst enemies. And they didn't just change the world, but they were changed through serving. Francis Assisi, he speaks of this. He, he gave his life to the poor. He forsook uh, all materialism and lived a very simple life so he could just devote himself to the poor. Um, he inspired literally after him and in his own lifetime thousands upon thousands of people to, uh, to give up their worldly life and to live their lives simply for the poor. Uh, but early in his life, something that people don't know about Francis of Assisi is that he was incredibly arrogant, wealthy, and aristocrat. Until one day when Francis was returning from the Crusades on horseback and he was wondering what path his life uh, should take, here on his path was a leper. And St. Francis, his whole life, was terrified of lepers. This went all the way back to his childhood. He had nightmares about lepers. Uh, if he ever saw a leper, they disgusted him so much, they literally made him uh, want to vomit. And his biographer, Valerie Martin, writes this. Francesco could ride on. There's no reason to stop. He could simply throw down his last coin to the leper as he passed by, but his eyes 
fell upon his own expensive, well-fitting glove, and it hit him that nothing covers this leper's misshapen hands. He stops the horse, he swings one leg over the saddle, he drops to the ground beside his horse. And the leper now turns to him and extends his hand to Francesco. And the old familiar response began to overtake him with nauseousness and choking. But then Francesco drops to one knee. He takes the leper's hand, he presses it tenderly to his lips bringing a sudden welling up of tears to his eyes. And the two men embrace each other, their faces pressed close together. And Francesco's heart was filled with joy. And Francis of Assisi later says about this incident, that is the day when I met Jesus Christ. And he said, that is the day when I changed. Crossroads, we can change. And we can change our world. But only if we become like our rabbi, the son of man, the son of man, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom. And God, I will be the first to confess that It takes a total miracle, God, for you to change my heart. But that's what you do, God. You you do miracles. And God, would you change our hearts so we could become ever more like Jesus. And God, as you change our hearts, God, would you cause us to uh, have eyes to see the hurt and the pain around us. And God would give us a heart like yours that breaks, that that is just wrecked with compassion. And God, may we expend ourselves, our time and our resources so so that we, Jesus, could put you on display and show the world who our king is that our world could experience the power of this king. Pray this in Jesus' name.